Welcome to One Stop Shop, a weekly podcast that helps ambitious e-commerce entrepreneurs learn from the best. Brought to you by Convergio. To learn more about managing all of your tools, channels, and strategies from one dashboard, visit Conversio.com. On today's episode, we talked to Crystal Richard about the importance of public relations. They say it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that sounds a lot like public relations. That's why our guest today is Crystal Richard, an experienced global PR expert who helped hundreds of startups and businesses navigate the world of PR. In this episode, Crystal shares her tips to build relationships, get media attention, and make your business newsworthy. Hey, Crystal, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. All right. For our listeners who are not familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Where do you work now and what's your role there? Yeah, I would love to. So as you mentioned, my name is Crystal. I am the founder and uh, I guess founder and president and owner. I have a whole bunch of titles because it's a one woman show um, (laughs) of Crystal Richard and Company. So that's my PR and marketing consulting business uh, that I actually just launched about four months ago now. I was with an agency for nearly five years and had really kind of felt that I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, I want to create a life for myself that I can have flexibility and be able to work with amazing companies from around the world. So I went ahead and did it and I launched this consulting business. And uh, so PR is kind of my specialty, but because apparently I'm not a huge fan of spare time, I also have a side hustle uh, with my own Shopify store that complements my blog, eastcoastmermaid.com. So I'm a full-time travel and lifestyle blogger, a full-time PR girl, and somewhere in there, I sleep occasionally. So <laughs> great, good stuff. You said East Coast Mermaid. Yeah, East Coast Mermaid is my blog uh, that started as a travel lifestyle, all about living on the East Coast and traveling to different destinations on the East Coast. And I got the crazy, wacky idea that I would start a little Shopify store and just sell some branded apparel with the logo on it. And that kind of took off. And so now that's like a whole thing. So in the last year, I basically launched a side hustle and a full-time incorporated consulting business in a year. No, yeah, I don't uh, spare time with that. To get us back on uh, what we're supposed to be talking about, that was my fault. I apologize. (laughs) Um, The importance of marketing is clear for most business owners, but public relations, so this whole PR for short, is something that's sometimes neglected. What exactly is PR and what are some ways that it can help a business that marketing cannot? Yeah. So what is PR is actually a great question because I think years ago people would have said, you know, public relations is, you know, having media talking about your company and journalists writing about your company and writing press releases and holding press conferences. But it's become so much more than that now that PR is really a huge part of marketing. It is marketing in itself. But I like to refer to it as, as building relationships with the media, building those relationships, getting media coverage, getting your team and your company out there on publications that aren't your own site. So marketing is something that you control, whereas public relations, you control it, but it's other people talking about your brand and your product um, and helping to promote yourself. Would you say that um, other people talking about your brand who are maybe your customers, that's part of PR as opposed to marketing? Oh, totally. One of the biggest things that I hear from journalists when I pitch journalists is 
you know, they're sometimes very cautious about writing just about a company, but if you can tell them a bit more about your customers, they love that. So case studies are a huge way that companies can get PR on their own just by essentially learning more about your customers and how your product or your service has helped them succeed and bundling that into a story and sending that to the media or even posting it on your own blog. If you have a, a, a company blog and you're talking about different stories of success that your, your customers have experienced, that's, that's PR too. It's so hard to define it as just one thing, but it's anything that's really building brand awareness for your company and ultimately building a tribe of raving fans, getting you users, getting you traction and attention. So to rephrase my last question, and you mentioned case studies, and that's an excellent way to uh, pitch to the um, uh, journalists out there about your company. But what if your customers are talking about you, not like a professional writer or a professional journalist, but just one of your customers or anyone out there um, really talking about your company? And nowadays, it's becoming a normal thing in social media to have uh, you know, everybody has access to a platform where they can become a quote unquote, um, you know, I don't want to say journalist, but sharing content of their own. Would that be yeah. part of PR? Because that, that actually doesn't feel to me, it doesn't feel like you have, we have complete control over it. Although we can by contacting these customers and asking them to talk about our brand. But that, that is, does that actually count as part of PR? I'm a little, you know, it's like a great... Yeah. It's really interesting because in all of my years of doing PR, no one's actually asked me that question in that context. And I'm with you. It doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like PR. And I would say, right, my gut is saying no, that it's not PR, but I think it's an opportunity for you to leverage PR to change the outcome or benefit from it. So if you see people talking about you, it, it's almost like with social media, I heard someone the other day, um, Amy Schmidhauer, she's blog like a boss. She's awesome on YouTube. I highly recommend checking her out. She was saying how so many people are like, Twitter's dead, but it's because they don't know how to use it. So many of us are out there putting things on Twitter and then we don't engage with people. And as businesses, it's like you said, you can have customers that are on Twitter talking about your product, good or bad. And if we need to be in there engaging with each and every one of those. So if it's bad, we tend to jump in because we want to save the day and fix the problem and again, avoid a PR nightmare. But if it's good, oftentimes we don't always capitalize on that. So there's an opportunity to definitely turn some of those, those outside customer opinions into a PR opportunity by connecting with them, possibly featuring their story on the blog, pitching their story to media. So in the beginning, if it's just them saying it, it's not necessarily PR. I would say that's just customer reviews and, and word of mouth in a traditional form is still PR, but like you said, we don't have control over it. But I think there's a huge opportunity to turn that into a PR op um, if you leverage it properly. All right. So one more follow-up before we dig into it further. Um, I'm a little missed still in terms of like, this thing is important, but I don't technically have control over it. What are some examples of like, say the services that you would provide to bridge that gap for me as the business owner? Yeah. So one of the things that um, I, I mean, again, that's such a vast question, but you won't have control over it. But I think a, a perfect example is let's take a negative situation. Nobody wants to talk about bad things happening, but they're, they're going to happen. Um, so if your company is, let's say, involved in something that has a negative reflection on your company or a negative effect, there's a lot of companies that might just sweep it under the rug or not want to talk about it. So I think when it comes to controlling the PR out there about your company, 
it's, you have to just be proactive and not reactive. So if there's anything that's coming up that you might know is not a good thing, it's, you have the power to reach out to the media and say, listen, we messed up. Here's how we're going to make it right. That's one example of, of having control over negative and giving them the story and the quotes that they need to tell the story properly. Because even if you have a journalist that's super talented and is ready to write your story, they're only human and they might mess things up. I know a girl that had um, a story written in the, her local paper about her company and they completely inflated how much money she had sold the previous year, which, you know, some might think, oh, well, now everyone thinks she did way better in revenue than she actually did. But it, it actually ended up messing up things with her investors because they were like, well, you told us this number, but then the paper saying this number. So she really had to take control of that situation and they had to issue a retraction and it was like this whole thing. So in terms of how you can control it, I think the key is just staying on top of it, knowing what people are saying about you, using um, you know media monitoring tools to know what's going on in your industry and being able to talk about it at all times. We call it newsjacking in our world, but if your industry is affected by something positive or negative, it's always reaching out to media so that you can have a say because the media won't always come calling and say, can we get a quote or what are your thoughts on this? You have to be proactive and out there making those relationships so that when things do happen, you can control it. So do you consider yourself maybe more of a guide in how to either maximize good things that are going on or to reduce the negative effects of bad things? Would that be an okay way to look at what you do? Yeah. So, I mean, I, in terms of controlling, um, what the media is saying, definitely a guide, a PR person is really that bridge to getting a story told and making sure that it turns out the way we want it to. Um, but I would also say that a, a publicist or a PR professional is also an opportunist in that we're getting new opportunities as well. So one of the biggest things that I do regularly is getting opportunities for my client brokering opportunities. So I have some clients that are amazing thought leaders in the industry. So I place contributed content for them. They write an amazing story. And as you mentioned, I guide it to the right publications. Um, I work with the editors to get the topic approved, get the piece you know, approved. Uh, my client would write the piece, obviously, and then I would help them edit it, make any recommendations, You know, say, well, I know that entrepreneur is a stickler, so they're going to want under a thousand words, things like that and work with them, and then get that final piece submitted. So that's a case of thought leadership. But when it comes to PR and earned media, as we call it, I'm also a storyteller. Storyteller, I would say even above the guide, um, is so crucial. Because whenever you're working with a company, oftentimes companies, you would think you would know how to tell your story. But so many companies have no idea how to position themselves, what their story is, what their why is. So I work very closely with companies for them to, to identify what that why is, what their story is, and build that into something that's going to interest a journalist um, to write about them and, and do a story on them. That makes so more storytelling sense. and guiding. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. I do like the, the thought of the guide, though, because I actually joke that I have roadmaps for my clients with destinations that they want to achieve, and that's different publications, podcasts, things like that. So it is, uh, you're the first person that's ever put it that way. And I, I kind of like that. No, that, that's fun. I was, it's the, the analogy that keeps coming to my head. It's not nearly as pretty sounding as a guide, but I keep thinking of like 
cowboy or cowgirl like wrangling cattle and the cattle's like all the stuff that's going on with the business and you're like no go in this direction oh gosh that one got away bring it back like that's the the analogy or the image that keeps going in my head you know what's funny though as someone that's had to wrangle founders to get for things from them for different media opportunities, it's totally true. I mean, I've had instances with some companies in the past that, you know, everybody wants media win and then you get them an interview with five o'clock news and four o'clock rolls around and you can't find the founder and somebody doesn't have a bio or a headshot. It's, it's crazy. And it is, you know, a busy job. A lot of time is spent pitching. I spend a lot of my time sending emails to people that may or may not write me back, who may or may not be nice to me. I've PR pros definitely get um, a lot of mean emails from media every once in a while. Um, and a lot of my time is just spent doing that and sending stuff out into the world. But when you do land those opportunities, it's true. It's like crazy because you have to get all these things together. And, you know, next thing you know, the headshot's not the right size or not enough pixels or too many pixels. Anyway, so that also, that description works beautifully. Both people need to be prepared for everything. Um, so I want to take you a few minutes back. You just mentioned something really interesting. You said some businesses have no idea how to tell their story or their whys. You know, there's a step in every business that I feel like a lot of businesses, especially the small ones, skip. And I might be wrong, but this is my gut feeling, which is um, to create an elevator pitch, basically to be able to tell your story yeah. or, your, or your business in just a few seconds. I mean, 90 seconds or less. First of all, what makes the perfect, quote unquote, elevator pitch? Short and sweet. Um, I think the elevator pitch originated, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it originated with startups looking to pitch investors. I know there was a, a startup weekend event that was here not that long ago where they actually had investors getting in an elevator with startup founders. And the startup founder had from the bottom floor to the top floor to deliver their elevator pitch. So it was literally an elevator pitch. So when they're 60 to 90 seconds, I, I honestly feel that's more for investors. And so those ones there definitely keep it under 60 to 90 minutes. Because if anyone's watched Shark Tank or Dragon's Den or any of these shows, we know that you, you have to keep it concise because they've got, they're busy. They've got a lot of stuff on the go. But when it comes to your elevator pitch for media, I like to think of it as almost your positioning statement, but short and sweet is so important. So I like to think of it as how would you describe your company in one sentence? Don't even give yourself 60 to 90 seconds. One sentence, who are you? What are you doing? And why are you changing the world? Why are you important? And that message should be everywhere. It should be and it should be consistent. So whatever your like one sentence is, it should be on all your social media profiles, in your Twitter bio, on Facebook, on your website. And that's the one that you should instinctively say when you meet someone and they say, hi, I'm Crystal. What do you do for a living? They can, you can tell them immediately in one sentence what you do. And that is super powerful because with journalists, I would say their attention span is probably even smaller than when you're pitching investors. So you really have to make sure that you hook them in one sentence with what you do in your pitch. So it's like, hey, I've got a really hot news topic for you. Um, we're company X and this is what we do in one sentence and then fill in the details of what your news is. But you can't spend a paragraph describing what you do. It has to catch their attention right away. Is it necessary to have strong relationships in this field or can you get away with cold pitching as long as it's interesting enough? Yeah, so relationships are paramount. I will say that um, one of the reasons that I credit for being successful in doing what I do is the relationships that I have. But that being said, 
six, seven years ago, I didn't have those relationships. And all of my relationships started with a cold pitch. So I don't want anyone to be afraid of sending a cold pitch. That's how relationships are made. But one thing that you do have to keep in mind with a cold pitch is I, I know that you just said, you know, is it important to be interesting and appealing? Yes, it is. But one thing that I think so many people forget is to just be human. Um, my biggest advice with PR is it's, you know, it's public relations, it's building relationships, be a human, don't overthink it. Don't treat them like a robot. Um, do your research, find out who they are, what they've written about recently, what they like, make sure that it doesn't look like you've just copy pasted another email. Because when I think of a cold pitch, I often think of an email that was written, and it was sent to about 100 different journalists. And the only thing that was changed was the, you know, hello, so and so, and maybe a mention of what publication they write for. And a journalist can see right through that. Take the time, if you're writing a cold pitch, to put warmth into it. Um, introduce yourself. Let them know who you are, why you're specifically reaching out to them. Compliment them. Um, you know, I once saw a, a journalist that I was going to pitch that had a comment in her Twitter bio that she loved sloths. I also love sloths. So I opened my email with like a, hey, I heard you love sloths. Me too. Here's a gif of Kristen Bell freaking out over a sloth. And she wrote me back immediately. And she's like, oh my gosh, soulmates, you know, let's be friends. Just treat them like an ordinary human. I mean, obviously be respectful, but be fun and be nice and be warm. I think cold pitch is such a cold word, obviously. Just try to be human and build that relationship. And I promise you, it won't feel like a cold pitch if you're being authentic and being yourself. So what are those traits that we tend to open? What are those specific human elements in these cold emails that you're referencing? Yeah, so if this is going to sound so millennial, um, but if there's an emoji in the subject line, I love those. And I've actually started using emojis in more of my pitches since going out on my own. Um, when I was with an agency, everything was kind of, you know, a little more structured. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to put emojis in my pitch line. Now I put emojis, not only sometimes in my pitch subject line, but at the end of my email. Um, and I've just found that that actually has way better open response rates. I should really do a study on this. If someone has an emoji, if I genuinely believe that they've taken the time to get to know me, so it's often hard to tell from an email. And I'm cursed that I will open every email and I'm putting this out into the world now and anyone hearing this is like, sweet, if I email her, she'll open it. But because of the industry that I'm in, I can't risk not opening an email because it might look like it was something that someone's pitching me, but then turns out they saw a press release that one of my clients did and they're actually interested in covering my clients. So I do have to open every email, but if I make it past the first paragraph, it's because they've actually said something in that paragraph that has suggested that they either know who I am, have done the research to know what I write about, what I talk about. Um, as a blogger, I get a lot of emails from companies that are like, hey, can you cover this product? Like, we want to send you free product. And it's something that has absolutely nothing to do with who I am and what I write about. So I think it's just finding that hook that shows that you've taken the time to know who this person is. And that is worthy of me writing them back and or reading their whole email. I have a follow-up question about the emojis because I personally use them a lot and I even like instinctively like use the exclamation marks when I feel genuinely happy or excited to hear from someone. And and I you know, I, I can afford to do that in my position because, you know, I'm not working in like, I don't know, uh, a mortgage company or 
<laughs> you know, it's like it's it's fine. I can I can be human, like you said, right? But some people in some industries might feel like using that form of communication might make them sound like high schoolers, if you know what I mean. You know, yeah. it's it's not yeah. necessarily true. It's not necessarily true, but but what what do you have anything to say about that? Like, is there a fine line between between being human and friendly and warm and crossing that in certain industries where you you start to hurt your image and you start to seem like you're less serious or you're less um, uh, authoritative, basically, because of the communication style that you're using in writing? Yeah, I, I think the fine line is really stopping and, and it, it, it stops at the company you work for, ultimately. And I, I hate to say that that is the answer, but I think if you work for a company, like you said, if you're working for a mortgage company and even mortgage companies, I mean, I don't want to diss mortgage companies. Like I'm seeing realtors now, local realtors that I know doing way more cool stuff than realtors were doing 10 years ago. I mean, they're on Facebook live, they're using emojis, they're doing memes, but I think it's, it ultimately comes down to each person's email style needs to somewhat reflect what their company values are. So if your company has very specific rules about how you're supposed to email, how you're supposed to address things, certainly don't listen to me and go start putting emojis in there because I don't want anyone to lose their job. <laughs> but I think it's just using, if, if emojis aren't an option or being funny or sending gifts of sloths is not an option, just adding names. How often do we get emails where it doesn't actually say the person's name or it's, you know, the subject line is really boring. If I can't use emojis or even sometimes if I use emojis, I usually put like hey, so-and-so in the subject line. I put their name in that subject line. So right there, that person knows that this wasn't a blanket email to 100 people because I wouldn't have been able to do that if I was BCCing everyone and have their name in the subject line. So just using people's names. How often do we still remember to do that is one way to just be more human. And the other is, I guess, just anything that you can do in that email to, you know, have a great weekend or I hope your holiday this weekend's great. Little things like that that just add a certain extra warmth to what would have to be a cold email if that was the email structure of your of your company. And also, I think avoiding corporate words and like overcomplicated um, terms that people don't use in normal everyday language. I yeah. think you seem like so robotic and so cliche. It's not even funny. I I I, I don't know. I I personally trust a company that speaks like a person and I would yeah. err on the side of being too human uh, rather than being too professional. In fact, going back to the example of a mortgage company, and I'm not trying to demean, you know, mortgage companies, but you know, any industry that sounds really boring and really strict, I personally, as a consumer, I would still like them more if they were being human and fun, like you said, and, and using Facebook live and using emojis. I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at these things as a negative, you know? Oh yeah. And I think a lot more companies are getting there. Um, you know, when Snapchat first came out, a lot of it was, you know, it was just Snapchat, it was just teens and millennials that were on it. And the next thing you knew, big companies started jumping on the Snapchat bandwagon. And the next thing you knew, these traditional corporate companies were all on Snapchat. So I think a lot of companies are getting there. And I think, you know, if you work for a company that you're in this situation, why not bring it up with a manager that you suggest and just say, listen, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but on the internet, you know, emojis and gifts and all of these things are becoming more prevalent. And that's how people are building more meaningful relationships is, is by adding this fun touch. Um, because I think there's a lot of companies that they're so hard on, on millennials, but I think that millennials are actually starting to help some companies get out of the stone age. So 
I think it's important to have those conversations, especially if you're in a marketing team and just with your team leaders say, you know, maybe we should consider adding a house emoji to our email about mortgages and open houses. Absolutely. Yep. None of us are getting mortgages now. They're all going to be after us and because we've been saying so many bad things. <laughs> still love the mortgage industry. <laughs> I still do too. All right. What about, we, so we covered a lot of different elements of the, the cold approach. What are, say, let's say three key aspects to maintaining good relationships, like on the warm side of things? Definitely not always asking and remembering to give as much as you ask. So one of the things that I do with a lot of journalists that I love and adore is that in addition to them helping me out, I do things to help them out. So whether that's introducing them to someone that's not a client of mine that I have no gain to introducing them to, helping them provide quotes for articles that they're working on, promoting their stories. So it's really easy to be on, let's say, Forbes.com and you read an article and you hit the share button and it goes to Twitter and it just says at Forbes and it doesn't credit the person that wrote it. I always take the extra like 25 seconds it might take to find that author's Twitter handle and then put it so that they're getting tagged on Twitter too. And people are seeing, oh, this person read my article. I think it's making sure to to help them too, because they're writing a lot of articles. They want to get more stories. So, you know, once you've helped yourself and they've written about you, don't let the relationship end there and pick it back up in six months when you need something from them again. So share their content, offer to help them when it's not beneficial to you, make introductions to other people you might know, things like that. All right. So how does a complete beginner get started building a solid list to connect with and pitch to? a group of people or companies that they can reach out to, to get their, you know, name out there? So it all starts with, essentially, you need to figure out who your target audience is. So once you know who your audience is, what publications are they more most likely to be reading? So a great example, I worked with a startup that had a fashion product um, a few years ago, and all they wanted was TechCrunch. And I kept telling them, TechCrunch, your, your readers are not, like, your readers are lifestyle, beauty, fashion bloggers that do makeup stories and post clothes pictures. They're not reading TechCrunch. Oh, no, no, we really want to be on TechCrunch. So they got on TechCrunch. They got on TechCrunch three times. And none of those times on TechCrunch resulted in them getting new users or converting. So I, you know, had that moment where I didn't want to say I told you so. But that's, that's so important that we get really caught up in these vanity outlets where it's like, we have to be in New York Times, even if your product isn't necessarily a fit for New York Times or your, or your customers aren't reading New York Times. So know who your customers are, know what publications they're reading. From there, you're going to look at those publications and you're going to see who at those publications is covering similar companies or stories related to what the story you would be pitching would be. So an example that I could use is, let's say you work in retail Find out who the retail writers are for Forbes, Entrepreneur, Business Insider, things like that. Um, and those are the people that you'd want to pitch. So once you identify the journalists or the writers, and there might be several, you're, you're always going to want to ba have backups because sometimes it honestly will take two to three different writers and pitching them at a publication before you find one that has capacity to write your story, is interested in writing your story. Um, so build that list, build out you know, the writer find their email. Oftentimes they're listed on the website. Um, if not, it might be in their Twitter bio. And if it's not in their Twitter bio, I would be willing to bet that if you were to 
go through their at replies on Twitter, you might see that they've recently given their email to someone over Twitter who asked because it wasn't anywhere else. I know that sounds so sneaky and stealthy, but it honestly works every time because I find if their email is impossible to find, there's always someone on Twitter asking them. Um, and you can also ask them. I've done that plenty of times where I've sent a tweet to a journalist and said, hey, you know, I have something that I think you might be interested in. I'm having trouble finding your email address. What's the best way to get in touch? And they'll typically send you their email address unless they really don't want to talk to you or are just pitched all the time, which happens. But yeah, and then you just, you keep your list growing. I always tell clients, whatever their media list starts out as, that's going to double. It might quadruple um, as you start doing outreach because it's hard to find journalists that A, are interested and B, have capacity. So you always need to have backups at publications. So what, what are you, like, say I, I'm the small business, I reach out to these journalists, what am I actually asking them in the email? Am I, I just want them to cover me? Am I, what type of information do I give them in order for them to even care who I am or to want to write about me? So that ultimately comes down to knowing what your story that you're going to pitch is. I, an ex- exercise that I do with every client is ultimately coming up with different angles and hooks that in, that media would be interested in. So for some publications, you know, if it's entrepreneur, they're probably going to want an entrepreneurship style angle. So how this entrepreneur went from being, you know, broke and bankrupt to getting a small loan and founding what went on to be a million dollar company, that would be my hook. So when you email these people, you have one of two options. You can pitch them from the get-go, which if you're on a time crunch or you, you, know, you really want to get results fast, that's usually the best way to go. So you'd email them, introduce yourself, say, I'm with company X, and then you know, do your one-liner that we talked about. We've, been, we've had some really interesting news this past month, or we're you know, launching a new product or initiative, things like that. Whatever your news hook is, I would say two to three sentences to cover what that is. Um, and then basically say, you know, I'd love to tell you more. Would it be possible to hop on a call to chat? If you have a press release, you can attach that to the email, but short and sweet is key. A lot of people want to put everything into an email, but I'm always caution people that you just need to find out what the key elements that you're going to hook them with are and make sure those are in your email. That's one option. The other option, if you're not on a time crunch is really just reaching out to them to get to know them. So saying, you know, I work in retail. I noticed that you cover retail. I'm curious if you're on the lookout for new story ideas right now and or perhaps you need some experts or some new sources who could weigh in on a story or two that you're working on. Tell them a little bit about your background and just say, I'd love it if you could keep me in mind. That works for me more often than pitching the actual story. Um, I had a Forbes and an entrepreneur writer in the last week alone that I, I tried that and I just said, listen, I represent someone that I think could definitely be a valuable asset to you in terms of providing quotes. Would I be able to send over some more information? And they wrote back immediately and said, yes, you know, I'm always on the lookout for new experts. Please send over some info. So those are two ways you can do it. Um, and again, it really comes down to how fast you're looking to get results. All right. So that's, uh, that actually leads me to my next question, because one thing that that's in common between marketing and PR is that you don't always get the or see the results right away. Um, so how does someone measure the effectiveness of a PR campaign, uh, as soon as possible after launching it? Yeah, I think, um, one thing that I, I definitely want to start by saying is that one of the things about PR is that it is incredibly hard to measure it. Even at any point, you can get an amazing piece of coverage and you might not get any new users or new signups. You might get a ton of traffic and it might not convert a million different things can happen. Um, so it is really hard to not only track, it's hard to, for, like, to prove a, an ROI on it. 
um, which is a struggle that a lot of founders see. So one of the things that I stress is if you're going to invest time and energy into PR, you need to understand that it's not necessarily directly correlated to getting users, but it will increase your brand awareness. And brand awareness for any company is so important because, you know, they say that I think, I think this number might have gone up, but that a company name has to be a blip on someone's radar seven to 10 times before they actually engage with it or make a buying decision about it. So the more places that you're in, the more effect that's going to have on you getting customers and getting sales. You might not ever be able to measure its effectiveness. You might see that the traffic came in, but then have no proof of if that led to conversion. But what you can do is just measure engagement, see how many people are getting involved on social media, who's talking about it. These are where using media monitoring tools come in so handy so that you know who's talking about you. Uh, Google Alerts is a super easy way. If you set up Google Alerts with your company name, that way there, if let's say, um, you know, the New York Times covers you, but then another publication picks up the story, you might not know about that if you don't have alerts set up. So really just taking a look at who's talking about it, what influencers or Twitter followers have shared it, what their followers are, and kind of looking at it holistically like that versus getting obsessed with how many numbers or how much traffic came through. Because the one thing is that you you can see a headline about a company and not necessarily read the article or visit their website, but the, the company is now implanted in your brain. And a week later when someone says, oh, do you know any companies lately that are offering you know these services, that name might pop up in your head and you never even engaged with them. So it's very, very hard, but I think it's just looking at it from a whole and, you know, how many social shares, how much traffic and, and looking at it that way. All right. Kind of in the same vein on news releases, is a new product or a feature launch always newsworthy? I wish I could say that it is, but unfortunately, given the current state of the media, it's, it's not. Um, back four or five years ago, I can remember when a new feature or a product launch would get, you know, all of the tech publications covering it, everyone freaking out, excited. Now, you know, if you can get one big tech publication to cover your launch or your, your product feature, that's considered a win. What happened is we're living in this world where we have so many unicorns and these media publications need to cover them. So if Instagram does something, they're all going to cover it. If Google does something, they're all going to cover it. We're all familiar with how I've had Google squash so many press announcements because they randomly decided to change their logo that day and that, you know, ruined all other news. So I think what you need to do is companies need to be really strategic. If you are launching one new feature a month for the next six months, perhaps consider waiting until all of them have been launched and then bundling that into a package that you send a journalist and say, we've had a wild past six months, great growth. In the last six months, we've announced all these new features these are how they're changing our customers' lives versus doing every single one. Oh, we launched, you know, a new chat feature. Oh, we launched a new scheduling feature. Um, and yeah, and then with product launches, it's really, they need to be in, with product launches, you know, I'm not saying don't pitch them to media because if the media is having a slower week, if you find the right journalist that has capacity that day, there might be an opportunity but when it comes to product launches and features, I, I like to suggest announcing those internally and doing a Medium post. Medium is such an underutilized outlet that it's almost like having your own little media publication, but not. So if you are announcing a new product and you're really excited, do a really cool Medium post and promote the heck out of that. Get your friends and your family and, and your network to share it. Put it out all over your social media. So you're still getting your news out, 
but you're not relying on TechCrunch or VentureBeat breaking the news and, and being disappointed when it doesn't happen. And how is Medium uh, for, a, let's say, an e-commerce business owner? Because most of our listeners are actually um, from the e-commerce world. And yeah. for them, it's, it's slightly different, I guess, than, uh, than, you know, than a tech company. And, and I think for them, unfortunately, it's probably even more challenging to get the press to talk about a product release, unless that product really has a story or something that makes it special. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think Medium is an excellent way for anyone that's in that kind of gray area where they might not get the tech outlet's interest, but they want something a little bit different than their company blog. Um, Anyone can sign up for Medium. And I mean, ultimately, it comes down to how you promote it, right? So if you have an e-commerce store and you do a post on Medium, make sure that it's on all your social media, but also send it out in your newsletters. Um, Or if you're using, you know, something like Convergio for email marketing that you can send out a receipt and have like, check us out on Medium talking about our new our new features. Leverage it that way because that's one thing. Medium's great, but it, if you don't promote the post on Medium, no one's going to know about it. So I think for e-commerce store owners, it's incredibly important to still share those news, the news with your, your, your customers, um, but just make sure that you're promoting it too so that they know about it. Put it in your newsletters, put it on your social media. Um, and yeah, and I mean, e-commerce is, is you know, there's press releases for those techie companies, but e-commerce is like a whole other ball game of different things that you can do um, to generate PR and stuff. So I feel like that's a talk for a whole other day, but uh, <laughs> definitely e-commerce shop owners blog too. Um, I know things are busy and, and there's lots of shipping and handling and all that fun stuff yes. to do, but make sure to get your story out there too, because it's just as valuable as, you know, the unicorns and any other tech company. All right. Where can our listeners learn more about your PR services? Uh, they can visit crystalrichard.com. Um, so C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-R-I-C-H-A-R-D.com to learn a little bit more about what I do and all of my, I call it global storytelling with an island in the sun kind of vibe. So I have fun. Love I have it. pineapples in my branding. See, there, there's my positioning statement right there. So it's, it's a really fun time. Perfect. Thank you so much. One Stop Shop is a production of Conversio. Let Conversio's all-in-one dashboard run your marketing so that you have more time to run your business. Get started for free at Conversio.com. On our next episode, we talk to Dan Moyle about the power of video marketing. Video is now. Video is going on right now. It's not the future. It's not, you know, someday. Video is going on right now. So for anybody who doesn't really care about it, I think they're missing the boat. And, And frankly, not a lot of businesses are doing it or doing it well. You can be kind of an early adapter and be powerful more on the next episode one stop shop is also produced by my company come alive creative do you have a question about making a podcast for your brand product or service check us out at comealivecreative.com and finally we'd love it if you would leave us a rating head on over to convergio.com forward slash itunes convergio sell more do less